0: Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Today, we are looking at 1 Kings 12 through 14 and 1 Chronicles 11 and 12. Yeah. Um, So just think about the weight of David and Solomon and a weight that affected the whole world. I think it is legitimate to say um, that Israel during the time of Solomon was one of those nations that we read about that was at its heyday the most powerful nation in the world. It was like Egypt. It was like Babylon. It was like Assyria. It was the nation that people looked to. It was the nation that spurred the economy of most of the planet through the trade that Solomon did and the way he enabled the trade. You can argue that cultural changes happened forever, Because when you have that kind of unity among the world that you haven't had to that point, it shifts everything. We see that again with the Greeks later, where it just changes everything when you have this kind of connection and contact that you haven't had before. And the trade routes that Solomon opened up really made that happen. You have people communicating with each other who never have. So think about the weight of this. Think about how big this is. Think about what a force Israel is. And Their decline after Solomon's death is so... Fast. it is so abrupt and, and it goes from being this incredible force to be reckoned with to really kind of nothing and that in itself is instructive and I like to think coming off of Ecclesiastes I'd like you to think about the irony that it proves so much of the message of Ecclesiastes which was you think you do all this great stuff And it doesn't last. (laughs) And here we see the decline of Israel like that. The other thing you'll see as we go, and I'll just mention this and then we'll we'll, we'll touch on it a few times, is you'll see very clearly this is not a random decline or a haphazard decline. There is somebody in charge of this decline. Who is that? God. (laughs) There are things that happen that God makes happen. And the authors of Chronicles and Kings keep reminding us that this happened because God made it happen. God did this. Because this is what he told Solomon would happen, right? And it was prophesied that it would happen. This is where we are. So we see that the decline, just like the rise, it's not an accident and it's not random. But the speed of it is, is, is impressive uh, given where we were. And so as, we, as we're about to read about it, I just want you to remember the height from which we're falling. Because okay. even though we know, we've seen the prophecy as we were reading the end of Solomon and reading Ecclesiastes, we were already kind of in the mindset of this whole thing's going to fall apart. But understand that until Solomon died, probably no one in Israel really got that. Because it was still prosperous up to, the de- up to his death. It was still working. All right. So, so that's, when, that's where we come in. One yes. of the things you said three years
1: ago was once we got to a point where you would start tying in other dynasties, yep. where the Chinese were coming into yep. play, maybe the Japanese, the yep. European countries. Yep. Is any of that happening yet? Now? I am
0: going to mention a couple, little bit of that. Okay. Again, we're still ancient enough that the, there's not a lot of direct evidence or history, but I will start to mention a few, a few of the other countries, and as we go forward, you'll see me do more and more of that. Because okay. we do want to give you a touchstone about where the rest of the world is. All right. Um, just a little bit of review since it's been a little bit a, a review of what has happened before, even kind of before Ecclesiastes. So uh, Solomon has three primary enemies before he dies that start being a, a little bit annoying to him. And it's kind of God's way of saying, remember what's going to happen after you die. <laughs> um, we have Hadad the Edomite. Which is a feud that goes all the way back to Joab's days. We read that all the way back to in the time of David, Joab did something as he was wont to do that was not the most diplomatic thing. And we have this guy named Hadad, who then has children, who then end up having this kind of feud against Israel uh, from Edom. We have Rezan, who is also an old enemy of David's from Aram, uh, or the son of an old enemy of David's from Aram. So we've got Edom and Aram now kind of poised, waiting for Israel to decline so that they can fill the void. But then the big one is Jeroboam. Remember, Jeroboam was actually someone who worked for Solomon. He was one of Solomon's officials, but he was disgruntled. We don't know exactly why. Um, But at some point in there, he's met by Ahijah, who's a prophet, who says to Jeroboam, God is going to give you 10 of the tribes of Israel. He's going to yank them out of Solomon's family, And he's going to give them to you, and he's going to let uh, Solomon's son have one. And we talked about how 10 plus 1 is only 11. Uh, Those of you without a calculator, remind me. 10 plus 1 is only 11. We are going to find out today what's happening and why it's, why. There are actually two tribes that are kept by Solomon's son, but they seem to be counted as one at this moment. And that may speak to the smallness of one of them. Um, We'll see. But we'll find out why that is. But anyway, here's this prophet who goes to Jeroboam and says, you're going you're gonna to rebel, you're going to win. Be prepared. And Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam at that point. I think this is before he reconciled himself to the fact that God was going to do what God was going to do. So he tries to kill Jeroboam, and Jeroboam flees to Shishak. And then Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, and I believe makes his peace with God. And then he dies. And then Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, becomes king of Israel. And his kingship of all Israel is possibly the briefest kingship, uh, at least of all Israel, of anybody. <laughs> it's very short. It doesn't last long. And that's what we're going to see why. Uh, here's kind of the, the review statement. This is what God said. Since this is your attitude, and I just love you know God speaking to one of his children that way, because don't you all say that, parents? Well, this is your attitude. Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet, I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So God is revealing two things here, right off the bat, in this midst of this horrible devastating news to Solomon he is nonetheless also revealing both his faithfulness and his grace he's like look you deserve to just be gone (laughs) should just wipe the whole thing out but I'm not only not going to take everything from you I won't even take it from you wait until you're gone but then I'm going to leave your son with one and I'm going to do it because I made a promise for Jerusalem and for my people and we're going to maintain that that David's lineage will still be involved here um, so that's, that's where we were. All right. Now, we're going to read the history. We're going to find out about the divided kingdom. And a lot of what we're going to do today is just read the story and talk about the story. And um, it's a good story. Again, somebody needs to make some great movies out of these. There have been some mediocre movies out of some of these. Somebody needs to make a great movie because these are great stories. But anyway, Game of Thrones has nothing on <laughs> uh, the tribes of Israel. Okay. Uh, This is about 930 BC, and to Mark's question, there's not a lot going on in the rest of the world that that we know, because there's not a lot of people who are big enough and keeping written records clearly enough for us to know. One, though, that is, is China. And so this is actually, in in 930 BC, we're right in the middle, or at the beginning, I guess, of one of the longest, well, actually, the longest dynasty in Chinese history. Um, And a dynasty just means the same family ruling for a period of time, and in this case, it's 790 years. That's a long dynasty. This is interesting in contrast to what Solomon was potentially uh, head over, and how quickly he lost that. Right here in China, they're having a dynasty of the kind that David believed was going to happen, and sort of happens, if, but it's much smaller, you know, because it's just one tribe, and and it's interrupted, and it's really questionable. But, so it's interesting to see in China here, this is happening. Um, it's uh, from 1046 to 771. So I guess this is actually yeah, almost right in the middle. 1046 to 771 is something called the Western Zhao. Uh, and this is a royal dynasty by the House of Ji. And the reason the House of Xi held on to it for so many years is because they, they also happen to be the head of the military. And when you, uh, I mean, that's how that, that, that works. That helped David's kingship as well, right? When you leave the military and you've the, got uh, the dynasty, you kind of win. Um, and Western Zhao actually continued, to, turns into something called Eastern Zhao um, and continues for another 500 years. So you can kind of call that one dynasty because it's the same house. They just kind of had some adjustments in, in how things were happening. And eventually their power, what's interesting is a dynasty does not lose out because a military power conquers them. What happens to this dynasty, and you can kind of see this, after 790 years, you just don't pay as much attention anymore. It just, I mean, this is just the way it is, right? My family's been ruling for almost a millennium. You know, what, what else is there? And so what actually happens is that regional powers just begin to uprise a little bit and just begin to be a little bit ornery. And eventually, some of these regional powers just broke away, and as they did, uh, the, the dynasty just began to gradually, almost, almost like, uh, without noticing it until it was too late, they just lost the centrality of their power, and once they weren't centralized, the military, there wasn't much the military could do at that point, and it just kind of stopped being a dynasty. And then, as always happens, somebody else steps into that void and, uh, and, and takes over and recombines all of China. But at this point, at this point, we're still in the middle of Western China. That's where it's going to end up being. Um, This is also the time that bronze making is big in China. So this is kind of the big bronze age for China. In case you're interested, that's what's happening in in China. And this is also over this period of time, um, around 930 BC, is when the written script of China begins to evolve into what we see in modern Chinese writing today. So they're making that transition we were just talking about from oral to written right at this time, or making it more significantly. They had a written script, but now it's becoming more concrete, it's becoming more consistent, it's becoming more reliable. So that's what's happening in China. None of that is impacting Israel at all. China is the other side of the moon um, as far as they're concerned at this point, all right? Uh, Egypt, Egypt is the other nation that tends to pop up throughout history and does right things and is a big, powerful nation and they have certain epics where they're very important and they're very successful and they're very victorious and there's a lot of writing about those moments, because Egypt really wants to make sure everybody knows about them. And then there are these few moments where we know nothing about Egypt, and the assumption is, and it's probably a correct assumption, is because these are moments when Egypt was not very powerful. And this is one of those dark periods for Egypt. We don't know anything about it. Now, likely what's happened is that Israel's dominance was Egypt's decline. Right? Right? We hear a little bit about them now and then, being in trade with Israel. We know they exist because of scripture, but according to Egypt's own history, it's just a black spot. They just aren't even around. Because again, they weren't doing anything significant that they thought was significant. They're probably even wrong about that. But again, they only write about major points of victory in their lives. That just happens to be the way Egypt writes their history. To be fair, it's the way a lot of people write their history. (laughs) Israel is kind of unique in that regard that we're about to read about Israel's decline, we're gonna get all that history. Um, and it's gonna be kept. And, and that's pretty much it. We do know that Greece is actually in very small ways beginning to become who it's going to become, but only, we can only say that with the power of hindsight. Nobody would have looked at Greece right now and said, ooh, they're gonna be a powerhouse. Um, but, but we can see there's some things that are starting to happen. We're, we're, we're getting towards the area of the, uh, the age of philosophy. We're actually beginning to approach that. We're going to see some things happen. Very, very minor at this point. Uh, Babylon, Assyria, we're going to hear all about them. They're getting ready to ascend, but at the moment they're just places. They're just part of Canaan. They're just part of these enemies of Israel. But we're going to start with First Kings 12. Is that where everybody is? Tell me, those of you who have chronological Bibles, if I miss something. Um, let me know. We're gonna start with 1 Kings 12, 1 through 20. Just a reminder. Does anybody remember who 1 Kings is possibly written by? We 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 pointed out one particular biblical character who is a good a good candidate for having written First Kings. And second Is it Jeremiah? Jeremiah. Right. And by the way, there is no first and second kings in Hebrew, it's just Kings. Okay? Um, we just have it broken up. Same with Chronicles. They're really just one book. We break them into two books. I'm not sure why. Tension span who knows um but uh but the uh jeremiah may have written kings it makes sense the timing is right the chronology is right and the tone is right meaning that jeremiah's ministry as we see when we get to him uh his prophecies jeremiah's ministry is one of warning it's one of dire warning over and over but it's worse than that poor jeremiah actually cries out to god at one point and basically says you have given me the worst job (laughs) in the world and he's right. In fact, I do not envy him, his ministry, because, and God even acknowledges this to Jeremiah. He's basically, is like, yeah, you're going to have to wait till you die to get better stuff, because this is your life. But basically, with Jeremiah, what he, you know, his job is, okay, Jeremiah, go tell the Israelites how bad it's going to be, tell them they're going to lose, they're going to be destroyed, that they need to repent. And Jeremiah's like, okay. And then God's like, but understand, they're never going to repent. So everything you're telling them is pointless. That's basically what God tells Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's like, why? Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to be the bad guy and nothing good comes of it? Well, we understand that it all ends up being huge prophetic material, which is important, but along the way it makes sense that he would write First Kings as a way to explain why everything's falling apart. Right? So the author of Kings, his point, his purpose in writing, whether it's Jeremiah or somebody else, so Jeremiah is as good a guess as any. Um, the author's point is to show why this happened. Why did Israel decline? After being promised so much by God, with God being so faithful, why did they end up not getting what they had been promised in the way they believed they'd get it? Again, God holds on to that remnant. He still gives them this lineage of David. And we know ultimately in the New Testament there's a fulfillment of the, of the pro- prophecy, which is huge. But for them, they're wrestling with that. And Jeremiah is explaining. This is why. This is why. This was a covenant we broke first. God never quite broke it, but it is why we're not experiencing the blessing we thought we should be experiencing. And so he, that's his whole point. So 1 Kings is not about hope, by the way. <laughs> right? It's not that there isn't any hope, but it's not about that. It's about explanation. So, This is what's happening.
1: When God uh, did this talking, he was, telling, uh, he was telling Solomon that he was mad at him for what he did. So I was getting the impression that this whole demise here was Solomon's fault. Well, but obviously, for this whole dynasty of the Israelites falling, they too were going their
0: wayward ways. Sure. And, and Solomon led them all into idolatry, but they, fo- they followed. Uh-huh. Right? And as we'll see, there is this interesting thing that happens throughout Kings and Chronicles where we read about somebody who makes a choice and we go, that was dumb. And then it says, and this happened because God decreed it. And I think it does want us to experience that tension of, yeah, people are doing stupid things that are leading to the decline, but yeah, God is also still here and involved in all this. And, and it is that age-old question of, is God in control? Do our choices matter? And the answer is yes. This is, this is my understanding of the whole argument about sovereignty and free will. We want to have arguments about, do we have free will? Do we get to make choice and do our choices matter? Or is it that God is in control of everything? And scripture always answers both those questions, yes. And then leaves us to live with it. And never tries to make them fit. It just says, yes, you have free choice and agency and free will. And yes, God is in control of everything. And so we argue with it, trying to figure out exactly how it works. And the Bible just says, just, yes. <laughs> and we see that in Kings and Chronicles. And, it, and, and as far as the Hebrews go, for whatever reason, they seem to have an easier time accepting that than we do. Because they say things at times that we go, whoa, whoa. And it seems to them like they say it like, yeah, of course. So we'll see some of that. And that's the same thing. Is it Solomon's fault? Or, or is it Rehoboam's fault? Or is it Jeroboam's fault? Or is it, is it the Israelites' fault? Yes. Is it God's fault? Yes. Okay. That's kind of where we are. All right. Um, but the author of Kings, if it is Jeremiah or whoever it is, does want to emphasize the, the, the human responsibility as well. He wants to emphasize the God's sovereignty, but he also wants to emphasize we we broke the covenant. We did not remain faithful to God. All right, so here we go. Rehoboam went to Shechem. All right, who is Rehoboam? Solomon's
1: king.
0: Yes, he is Solomon's son. If everything had gone differently, uh, he would be the king of Israel. He is, briefly. He is the son. He is the carrier of the lineage, okay? Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. Well, this sounds good, right? At the moment, it still seems all good. When Jeroboam... Who's Jeroboam? He's like like the nemesis, right? Uh, The prophet told him he would be king of the ten nations. Don't worry about the paragraph I put up there. That was an accident. I'll read that in a second. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. And when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. Because remember, after Ahijah made the prophecy, Jeroboam fled to Egypt. This is one of the few things we do know about Egypt. They're still harboring the enemies of Israel <laughs> at this point in history. When Jeroboam, son of Nabat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt, right? He's like, oh, I was promised the kingship. Everybody's going to make a Rehoboam king. I think this is, you know, I think God told me I'm supposed to come do this, right? That would be a fair way to read it. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam. So I love this. The whole assembly of Israel went to make Rehoboam king, and the whole assembly of Israel comes with Jeroboam to talk to Rehoboam. So it's almost like all we know is all of Israel is there, but whose side are they really on? Nobody knows. (laughs) Because it's just a a mess at the moment, right? Do we know if
1: Rehoboam is... Solomon's firstborn? Do we know that? I don't know. Do we know if
0: he is know. the
1: son of a prominent woman in I
0: don't. Solomon's life? Who do we call prominent out of the 900 oh, yeah, women in his I mean, life? I, I mean, is she the maybe she's the maybe he's the son of the song of Solomon woman?
1: Right. That's what
0: I was saying. <laughs> I have what, no do idea. Do we know anything? like a <laughs> Yeah. I yeah, so probably not. In fact. Yes, Meredith. Yeah, the people who are on Jeroboam's side. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the supporters. What you can see is already you've got, you've got the lines are being drawn. That's what's happening. Um, so here, this is amazing though. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went over Hoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. This is kind of an amazing statement. Is it sincere? It doesn't give us any indication it's not, right? It's interesting it mentions a heavy yoke that Solomon placed on him because you may not remember, but Jeroboam was in charge of the labor. So maybe that's one of the disgruntlement we had. Maybe towards the end of Solomon's life, he was taxing too heavily. Maybe he was working people too hard. Maybe he was trying desperately to finish his legacy with as many things as he could. I mean, we don't know, but maybe that's part of Jeroboam's problem in the first place. And maybe he genuinely is happy to serve for Jeroboam, If he will not do that, or maybe he knows, God already told him he's going to get 10 nations, 10 tribes anyway, so it doesn't matter what he does. (laughs) I don't know. But this is what he says. Your father put a heavy yoke on us, lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke put us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. It's a great idea. One thing we know about Solomon, for all his faults, he was a wise king. He did a good job leading people. Even this heavy yoke he put on them, it doesn't seem to have destroyed his kingdom. So he goes to the elders who consulted with his father. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Okay? That's a good answer. That sounds like a Solomonic answer. Be their servant today. Give them what they want and they will be faithful to you forever. Right? So that's what they say. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. Okay. Rehoboam did not receive as part of his genetic inheritance the wisdom of Solomon. Right? This is the worst. This is so dumb. This is so dumb. He goes to the elders. He clearly didn't really want their advice. He wanted affirmation for what he wanted to do, didn't he? Because he goes to the elders, he gets their advice, and he's like, nope, don't like that. Being a servant to them? That sounds terrible. I'm the king. So then he goes to his young friends, and he's like, what should we do? Okay, I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton. I think it sums up history really well. He says, I believe what really happens in history is this. The old man is always wrong and the young people are always wrong about what is wrong with him. The practical form it takes is this, that while the old man may stand by some stupid custom, the young man always attacks it with some theory that turns out to be equally stupid. I just, I love this picture that Chesterton is like, yeah, sometimes tradition is a mess, but what happens is the young guys come along and replace that tradition with a dumber tradition or an equally stupid tradition, and yet everybody feels smart. <laughs> and that's, that's not necessarily what's happening here. I actually think the elders gave him some good advice. But this idea that we want to go to the people that affirm us and think like we think, this is, this is a problem. This is Rehoboam's first uh, kind of big mistake. He never gets past this. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied. And by the way, grown up with him. Let's think about what that means. Rehoboam grew up son of the most powerful man in the world. And these are all his buddies who grew up probably in equally powerful positions. They're not thinking like servants. They're not thinking like like using authority in order to benefit people. They're thinking now it's our time. The old man's gone. Now we get to rule. So the young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. That's dumb, but you get the point. Yeah, it's just not even good imagery here. But you, because <laughs> at that point, scorpions are dead. But so, but he's, he's just, it's going to be worse. It's going to be 10 times worse. It's going to be miserable. So three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young man and said, my father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people for this turn of events was from the Lord. To fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. So here again, I don't think this takes away the responsibility of Heroboam. It doesn't say he didn't have any choice, but it is reminding us that all these things are part of the fall which was prophesied by Ahijah. And here we have for Ho'oboam, and it says, in a sense, if he'd made a different response here, everything might have been different. Right? Maybe Jeroboam would have been like, cool. This counter is Jeroboam's motivation. It is very and hard to tell. It, was it wasn't clear when it was like, had it it through, Or the it's correct. Job, like, the it's correct. And, it, and, it, and so far, he's never the never really The text is completely silent about his motivation until he becomes king, and then we learn about his motivations going forward. But up to this point, it's completely silent. But even if Jeroboam actually is still wanting it, the point is I don't think he would have any followers. Because one reason he might say this, even if he doesn't mean it, is because the people around him don't want a coup unless it's necessary. And so he's saying, give us this and we'll follow you, and maybe they wouldn't have gotten with Jeroboam. I'm, that's going to happen a lot. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, I'm going to confuse them. But maybe they wouldn't have gone with the bad dude, uh, Jeroboam, if... Well, they're both bad dudes, to be honest. But maybe they wouldn't have gone with Jeroboam if he had responded more softly, right? Because people want the consistency and the continuity. Yeah, Jeroboam. No,
1: Rehoboam.
0: No, no, Jeroboam. They wouldn't have gone with Jeroboam if Rehoboam had been softer. Oh, okay. But when Jeroboam approached him the first time, it was like, so what do you think you would be a little softer? He knew he was going to say what he said, and it was like, okay, just checking. Yep, you know, yeah, you know, to make sure clearly, I you. clearly, I mean, he had two options, yeah. and he already knew what he was going to say, and he well, went and sought counsel until he found it He
1: did him. not necessarily know what he was going to say. He knows that God was going to give him these kingdoms, but he didn't know that this would be the catalyst. Oh, Jeroboam.
0: Yes, I'm saying Rehoboam knew what he was going to say Because he turned down the advice until he got the advice
1: Rehoboam knew what he was Yeah, of course Is that what you were saying, dude? Yeah,
0: Yeah, well, when Jeroboam approached him And said kind of gave him the chance We're talking about Jeroboam giving him a chance Yeah he knew. Oh, you're saying Jeroboam Jerobo, knew. Jeroboam, happened. No, he might have. He, he might have. But he just wanted to, okay, I'm going to give he you He might have. I don't know if he did or not. And I know how you're going to answer, and when you answer the way I think you're going to answer, maybe. Hey, I checked, Could I be. Again, we don't actually know what his motivations are, so I don't know for sure if he knew this would be the instrument. That's what you were saying. Yeah, yeah I agree. He's, he's also got one example of a dynasty change in Israel's history, and that is he maybe not going to be fall. all. True. It doesn't matter. point is, this happened as the Lord prophesied. <laughs> so, before we get more confused about our bones, yeah. <laughs> let's move on. True, true. You're right. You're right. They're all pretty young. You're right. When all Israel, saw, so probably not his firstborn, by the way. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. So the point is, oh, that's how it's going to be. We're not a team. We're not a nation. We're not together. You're going to treat us like slaves. You're going to work us harder than everybody's out for themselves. Right. 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 And it appears that they both set up a system where they saw themselves as here to serve their country. And so even to have somebody in that lineage who's clearly thinking differently is also like, well, that's not what David, you know, we had share in David's house, but we don't now, you know, we had share even when Solomon was around as hard as it was, but now we don't. So forget it. We're on our own. More to the of this to you to. Yeah, so here's the interesting thing that happens. Listen to these phrases. So the Israelites went home. So that means most of them leave Jerusalem. Most of them go back to wherever their tribal land is, right? They go home. But for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam ruled over them. This isn't a choice This is an accident of circumstance. Do you see that? In other words, at the moment, it's not like Judah's making a choice. Remember how often Judah made a choice to serve David? Remember other times when there were rebellions and Judah was like, we're with David? We're sticking with David. And also Benjamin often was like, we're with David, and they would stick around. Well, in this case, it's less even strong than that. There may be some of that eventually, but at the first moment, it's just like everybody goes home, but home for those who live in Judah and interestingly enough for those who live in Benjamin because it's right there home for them is still really under Rehoboam's leadership. And so in that, that's how the division happens. It's that simple. <laughs> so, so there you go. It's not glorious. It's not, there's no story of loyalty here. It's just a story of yup. <laughs> so then we inertia. Then, it's a story of inertia. Yes. So then when this uh,
1: tribal thing gets separated and God gives 10 to Jeroboam, the one that sticks around is
0: Judah. It's actually Judah and Benjamin. And that's and he calls him one, and I think it's because it all is all down to this geography. <laughs> Benjamin just happens to kind of be part of Judah geographically, and so they're just like fine. You get that? We're, we're, yeah, you can have that one too. And it even says it doesn't. Rehoboam tries. It says King Rehoboam sent out Adon, Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. In other words, it's like a strike is the way he's seeing it at first. He's like they just don't want to work. We'll make them work, but he sends out his guy to make them work, and they're like no. We're a lot of people. (laughs) And we say no. And so they stone him. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape, which tells me he also went out expecting glory. Do you kind of get that? He sends his guy out and he goes with him. He's like, we're going to win this. And then he gets out there and he watches his guy get killed. And he's like, oops. And he runs. And he escapes in his chariot back to Jerusalem. And then it says, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Indication of when this is written indication of Jeremiah being in the right chronology. Because he's not writing at a time when things have gotten better. <laughs> right? That's, that's why. He's basically saying that's how it happened. And, and I think part of what he's saying is, did you think it was some noble rebellion? Did you think it was some noble war? Did you think there was some freedom fighting going on here? Because look how silly it is. It was a strike. People that didn't want to be with him left. Yes. That's all it was. There's nothing here to, to, to celebrate in song. You know, this is what happened, and it's been a rebellion ever since, says Jeremiah. And, and by Jericho
1: asking the question
0: and getting the answer for Jeroboam, he avoided a battle. Sure, sure, he did. And he looks like the good guy. Again, whatever his motivations were, right now, he looks like the reasonable guy. Yeah. He's not the one who left the table, right? He gave him a choice. He gave him a choice. And Rehoboam took his choice and Jeroboam said, okay, I'll take the rest. <laughs> Which again, that, that's a good position when you want to lead a coup. Make it look like it was unavoidable and it wasn't your fault. Okay. You know. And so that's what happens. Uh, when all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. We see later that Benjamin is included in that, but is apparently so insignificant at this point that it doesn't even get a mention. Read it again. 2 Chronicles 10, 1 through 19. We won't stop all the way through this time because we've already dissected it. We'll read it again, but I will point out again who wrote Chronicles. Does anybody remember the possibilities we discussed for that? Ezra. Ezra or Nehemiah. Um, and basically the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, and the Book of Chronicles, typical uh, belief. I'm going to say assumption because I'm not sure it's well, it's a good, it's an educated guess, let's say it that way. Typical educated guess these days is that all three of those books were written by the same person. Question is, was it Ezra or was it Nehemiah? It was probably one of those two. Either way, they have a very similar perspective, so it makes sense. And here's their perspective. is writing as things are falling apart, and he's explaining why. Ezra and Nehemiah are writing after they've come back from the exile. So the worst has happened. They're now back in Jerusalem, and they're rebuilding Jerusalem. And they're, they're on an, uh, a very small, but potential upsurge, right? Not like they have the power they used to have, but it's good. They're free again, sort of, and they're building things, and they're rebuilding the temple, and they're rebuilding the walls, and it's, if they're writing from that perspective, what's happening, and we know that Ezra and Nehemiah both are very concerned about this in their ministry. We see this in both the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. What they're concerned about is helping the Jews who have returned, the Israelites who have returned to Jerusalem to understand who they are, because they've now spent 70 years as slaves in Babylon. It's like they're back to Egypt again, right? And, and so Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to help them understand. Ezra, from a religious standpoint, Nehemiah, from a national standpoint, trying to help them understand who they are as God's people. And so they write this to explain how everything happened, but also to show how God was faithful to his covenant to bring them back, even though they weren't faithful. So they agree with, the, with Jeremiah that what happened was that they broke the covenant, but theirs is, but, Kings, but Chronicles has more hope and has more positive points about the history of Israel because they want to point out how God has always been faithful. So for example, the author of Kings is the one who tells us about the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah because Jeremiah is pulling no punches and wants to show how even the great David broke the covenant of God. The author of Chronicles does not tell that story, not because he's hiding it, because he knows everybody knows that story. He knows everyone knows it. Not, it's not he's hiding it. But he's not telling it because he's not emphasizing that. Instead, he wants to emphasize all the numerous ways David was faithful to the covenant. And more importantly, how God was faithful to the covenant. So there is a little difference, although in this story, there's no difference. <laughs> I think these two are identical. Although if someone wants to read Kings while I read Chronicles, you can tell me what differences you see when we're done. Because sometimes there are some that I don't notice. Is
1: it possible that since we think it might be one of these two... Yeah. The authors, that they both could be authors, or is it widely accepted that only one
0: guy wrote this? It's possible. Yeah, it's possible, but it does appear that Ezra could not have finished the Book of Nehemiah. So that means
1: that Ezra them. Yes. It means what? Wait. If Ezra did
0: any of the writing, then Nehemiah also had to have done some. Oh right. Yeah. It, yeah. The chronology is a little bit weird. We'll talk about it when we get there. It's a little hard, frankly, to sort out exactly. Because it feels like Ezra should be so much older than Nehemiah that they almost shouldn't be contemporaries, and yet there is a story in Nehemiah where they clearly are contemporaries. They're actually at the same meeting at the same time. And it just, it leads to questions about, is Ezra 129 years old? Right. Or have we got our chronology confused? So it, it, so it does get a little bit awkward to try to figure out exactly. But they all seem to be written by the same person stylistically. Uh. But, but it's possible that Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is written in first person, Which would make you think, well, obviously Nehemiah wrote it. We'll talk about all that when we get there. All right? What is possible, yeah. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was in Egypt, where he'd fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and all Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Come back to me in three days. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if you will be kind to these people, oh, this is different, and please give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Not in content, but just in words. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, The people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make your yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with those blasted scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Jeroboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered them harshly. Rejecting the advice of the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from God to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, "What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel! Look after your own house, David." So all the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the town of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but the Israelites stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into the chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Uh, It does still say that in the Chronicles passage. Some people think that's just because it is lifted and he didn't bother to change that because it's questionable whether when Ezra and Nehemiah were writing, he really meant to say that Israel was still in rebellion to Judah. Could be, could be, because things are still in disarray. So I'm not saying it's incorrect, um, but, but it's interesting that that's there at a different time frame. It's interesting to note we'll see this when we get to the to the exile and after. When Nehemiah returns to rebuild Jerusalem, it it, it speaks as if it's this grand moment of return, but we find out pretty quickly that only about two percent of all the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon actually returned to Jerusalem. So by the time they're set free, most of them have decided they're Babylonians, which is a distress to Nehemiah. And so he might have even said something like this in relation to that. Uh, more and more do. It's, one of the, it's kind of a wait-and-see thing, you know, as the walls start to get rebuilt and the temple gets rebuilt, then, of course, you have more of them coming back. Um, and ultimately, Babylon gets conquered, and then they definitely want to return. <laughs> it was too late for some of them. <laughs> so, yes, that's true. But that's good. Yes, we'll see. I think that's just because he's an honorable guy and he promised to come back. But. All right, First Kings 12, 21 through 24, is that correct? Is that what you all have next? Okay. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered all Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, is back in Jerusalem, okay? He was not able to stop the strike. His labor guy was killed. He comes back, says, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered all Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And this is the first that we hear of the tribe of Benjamin being part of this, but they are. 180,000 able young men. That's pretty good. That's not bad, right? He could make a go of this, right? We could have at least a significant civil war. Maybe we end up six and six instead of one and ten or two and ten, right? He uh, Tribe Benjamin, 180,000 able young men to go to war against Israel. Now, I just want you to stop and contemplate the sadness of that sentence, however. To war yes, this is a horrible moment. It doesn't matter what happens after this sentence. We have turned a corner, and it's a horrible moment where the king of Jerusalem, is going to war against Israel. <laughs> this is not good. But that's what he's doing. Well, they're with him now. I mean, maybe... I don't know. I mean, that, that, I'm not saying there's never any loyalty to the, to the king of David, to the throne of David. I'm just saying that they're there geographically. Then you, you need a reason at that point. Then, then you, you look to this. Well, we're the ones that are serving the lineage of David. They're all wrong. We're all right. Also, I don't know. Maybe he's. Maybe this is forced conscripted military work too. It's not above that. Sure. Also, in the
1: time of Solomon, which was a long ago or something, the the they were so prosperous that I mean, in the city of Solomon, so it might be that they are they're happy. They
0: had. Well, and I actually do not know. I do not know because this is a <laughs> translation. But the word "mustered" literally means force. That's draft. So I don't know if in this translation that's what it means or not, but in the English language that's actually what it means. When you when you muster an army, you don't just ask them to join you. <laughs> you're requiring them to join you. So maybe that's what it means. I don't know. Anyway, let's go on. To go to war against Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. If we can give them any credit at all, it's that they listened to God at this moment. But I don't know if we can give them a lot of credit. for <laughs> that. But here it is again. God's like, I don't want, I don't want you to fight. This is how it's going to be. Go home. Now, this phrasing always, this is only tangentially related, but it's an interesting story. And, it, and, it, and it's what I'm reminded of, so I'm going to share it. Uh, he says, God here says, go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. He says, don't go fight against your brothers, go home. I grew up f- till about the age of eight in Bangkok, Thailand. My dad was in the Peace Corps in Bangkok. And we were, uh, and it was an interesting time, um, early 70s. There was a lot of unrest. Um, going on, it's the Vietnam area, area, area. In fact, for those of you who don't know where Bangkok, Thailand is, it's right there next to Vietnam. Lots of unrest, lots of rebellions, lots of things going on. They had a king. I remember when we used to go to theaters, you had to stand up before you watched a movie, and they would put the king's picture on the the screen, and you had to stand, and they would sing the national anthem, which was in Thai. So oh, I, I just did their <laughs> No, you would not do that. Um, and so you stood and you, and you did that, and that was fine. And it was fairly peaceful. But there was a king and there was a prime minister. And I remember my dad actually telling me this story. One day he came home. Um, he was distraught. This is the bad part of the story. He came home. He was distraught because actually there was, a, there was a rebellion. There was a little mini rebellion right in front of where he used to work. And basically the king just sent in a bunch of helicopters and shot them all.
1: So yeah. this was uh, the prime crash.
0: minister did. Prime minister sent in a bunch of helicopters and shot them all. And, and my dad came home he was very distressed. Well, about a week later, he came home early from work, and he said, it's a holiday. And we said, why is it a holiday? He said, well, an interesting thing happened. He said, there was another rebellion out on the, out on the plaza in front of where I work. And the prime minister was sending out the helicopters. And he said, I will never again call the king just a figurehead. Because he said, the king caught on the TV. And he said, hey, everybody, and this is what reminds me of it, don't fight against your brothers go home. And my dad said, everybody went home. (laughs) Not just those who were hiding. No, everybody everybody went went home. (laughs) He said that, you know, the helicopters left and the people who were rebelling left. He said, everybody went home. And so I looked around and the other people there said, it's a holiday, go home. So (laughs) here I am. I'm home. (laughs) Anyway, it's an interesting story. Okay. Uh, so they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. Second okay, Chronicles. So
1: we've already discussed the fact that Solomon had been taking these guys into idol worshiping. Yeah. So could it be that the ten tribes basically have fallen away from God, yet Judah and Benjamin have not because they listened to God? He said, "Go yeah. home." Yeah. There, the there's ones?
0: there's an argument to be made that in the relative scheme of things, as we as we travel through the history of the divided kingdom, that Judah more often comes out on the side of following God, but it's only relative, and there are as many wicked Judah kings, well, maybe not as many, but there are plenty of wicked Judah kings as there are wicked Israel kings, and even as we read a little further, we'll see that there are problems in terms of worship in both cases, but yes, the other ten nations immediately turn towards idol worship, and the problem in Jerusalem is slightly different, slightly different, not so different to God, Slightly different for us. We'll talk about that in a second. So yes and no. Let's press on. When Rehoboam, 2 Chronicles 11, 1 through 4, we're going to repeat this. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 able young men, to go to war against Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam. But this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your fellow Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from marching against Jer- Jeroboam. 1 Kings twelve twenty-five. Is that where we are in your Bibles? So is Shemaiah the only man of God at this point? It's an interesting point. I don't think so. We're going to hear about other men of God. It is interesting at one point that a man of God is going to leave Judah to go talk to the Israelite king which does lead you to wonder if there's any men of God in Israel, yes. to your point, Who but we'll see. What? Ahijah, he's in Judah, we're going to see him again, okay. we're not done with so he's him. Not he's not, he's dead. not dead? He's not dead, he's an important character in fact, I'm surprised, I'm surprised we're as unfamiliar with him as we are, because he's kind of an important prophet in some ways, we'll see more things. All right. First Kings 12, 25 through 33. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem. So now, okay, so we basically got this contrast. So the, the division happens. Rehoboam at first isn't willing to accept it. He sends out someone to stop it. He ends up running for his life. Then he tries to get 180,000 men to go fight in an army. And God says, stop. So now he, that's what he tries to do. Now we're going to check in. It's like, meanwhile, on the other side of the ranch, we're going to check in with Jeroboam and see what he's been doing. And this is what he's doing. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. There you go. So it's not super close to Jerusalem. I take that back if it's in the hill country of Ephraim. Um, Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So for anybody who thought that Jeroboam was a man of faith who was super convinced that what God had said him would happen, it's really questionable right now because now he's like, he's tentative. He's paranoid. Well, I mean, maybe reasonably paranoid. Um, and his point from a strictly strategic standing isn't bad. What he's realizing is they've separated the kingdom, but God instituted something which was supposed to keep them united in that every so often they have to go to Jerusalem for these feasts, Right? They all have to meet again. They all have to be together. And, and Jeroboam's like, oh, well, if they do that, they're going to eventually return back to, uh, to Rehoboam. That's not good. So how is he going to prevent that? If he doesn't care about these sacrifices, what's the most logical answer? Yes, set up other places. Now, uh, they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves, ironic what he chooses, isn't it? I mean, golden calves are like in Israel's history, I mean, make a golden lamb. I mean, what what is going on? I guess a calf could be a lamb, but... Yeah, exactly. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves, and he said to the people, now this is interesting because what he does is actually very similar to what Aaron did, and I will remind you, for those of you here, something about that. He says it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Notice how he's phrasing this. Look, I don't want you to stop worshiping God I don't want you to stop worshipping the one true God. But it's going to be a lot for you to go to Jerusalem. That's just too much. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, in case you weren't clear on that. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. But here's what's important to understand. Jeroboam is not actually presenting them with a false god. He is declaring that these golden calves are the representation of the god who brought them out of Egypt. You understand that? It's a small distinction to us. It's a big problem to God. Because this is actually one of the commandments. Right? One of the reasons he didn't want them making graven images was because he didn't want them thinking of him in these particular ways. He is not a calf. Right? He's bigger than that. Don't do that. But I do want you to understand, Jeroboam is not saying it's a different God who brought you out of Egypt. He's simply saying instead of going to Jerusalem to worship the God who brought you out of Egypt. Go to this golden calf, we'll make this an altar to worship the God who brought you out of Egypt. It may not seem like, you know, it's not idolatry in one sense, but it is a graven image. It is a direct negation of everything God told them to do, including going to Jerusalem. But there's another inherent problem that he runs into, which if we think this through, we would see right away, and that's this. If they're no longer going to go to Jerusalem to make the sacrifices, what problem does that now bring into the sacrifices that they do make? Let's say God even said, you can do it in Bethel, and you can do it in Dan. What's the problem now when they go to make the sacrifices? Priests. Who's going to do the sacrifices? Because where are all the priests? They're in Jerusalem. <laughs> so now what do you do? Now you've got to compound this problem. Because now you're going to have to have non-priests do your priestly duties. Right? The He says... Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites, which does indicate he couldn't get Levites. And we're going to see later that the Levites, so do the Levites have land? No. They, They don't. And they don't have their own, they're not grouped together like the rest of the tribes. Remember, they were spread out, partly so they could do Levitical duties across the country. We're going to see later that a lot of the Levites moved to Jerusalem. Meaning they're leaving the other 10 tribes without Levites, right? Which is problematic on a lot of levels, but maybe what they needed to do. Um, so, in a sense, they're another tribe that sort of is, is joining Judah, but since they're still spread out, it's not quite that clear. And not all of them move to Jerusalem, well, but we'll see if some of them with do. Family, yeah, right. That's right. That's, that's right. That's right. So, I think that's part of what's happening here is he can't even find enough Levites to do the priestly duties, and he doesn't really care. (laughs) It's not his business. He just wants to make it so people don't have to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't care about the niceties. All right. Think back to how much trouble people got in to who weren't priests who did priestly duties in the time of Moses, in the time of Aaron, and even in the time of David. Saul, one of his biggest things was when he did a priestly sacrifice, and God was like, well, that's it. You're done now. I don't know if you remember, but that was the moment at which God said, you're out. You're going to be around for a while, but you're out. It was because he did a priestly thing, because he was in a hurry. And God was like, you should have waited for the priest. Bad on you. So it's a big deal. We have other people who weren't priests who did priestly things, and they're killed. God swallows them up, literally, with the ground. I mean, this is a big deal. And here, uh, Jeroboam is just kind of like, whatever, sprinkling people out to do priestly things wherever. And they're not worshiping in Jerusalem. And they've got these golden calves. I mean, it's just, it's kind of like, it's just, it it gets bigger and bigger. And at a certain point you realize, oh, he could care less, or rather he couldn't care less. He cares so little he could not care less about what God wants. He's just trying to be strategic, right? So Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month like the festival held in Judah and offered sacrifices on the altar. So superficially, he's doing the same thing. We're going to have the same feasts. We're going to have the same festivals. So what if we're using graven images in the wrong places with the wrong people? Other than that, it's exactly the same. (laughs) And again, his followers should have known better. They totally should have known better.
1: So with an altar, does that
0: mean they just had an altar by the golden statue? Yeah, yeah, they're just putting altars at these shrines in Bethel and Dan. And when we do look at the map, you'll see Bethel and Dan are, again, it's all about convenience, right? You don't have to travel too far either direction. If you're closer to Bethel or closer to Dan, you're going to be on one end or the other, right? If you're in the middle, you have to travel equally far either way. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made, and at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the 8th month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices This is all of his own choosing. You get that, right? <laughs> None of this is God's choosing. He offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Again, the point here isn't so much that he's leading them to worship Baal or Asheroth, although that happens because you can see how that's a small step from here. But it's not that he's trying to lead them to worship other gods. He's just making who God is so unrecognizable that he might as well be. Right? And he's doing it for convenience sake and so that they don't go back to Rehoboam. It's to a message. Absolutely. He is confusing the issue. To put it in the New Testament terms, Jesus reserves his most angry vitriol for those who obscure the gospel, who make it less clear what the gospel is about. It's not the gospel in the Old Testament, but it is the covenant, and they're making it clear. They're obscuring the message, absolutely. And he doesn't care. He's not concerned about preserving who Israel actually is. Go ahead, Mike. Yep. Yeah. for sure. Yeah, his politics is primary. His religion is just secondary to that. Absolutely correct. 100% true. Second Chronicles 11:5 through 17 Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and built... So now we're back to Jerusalem. Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and built up towns for defense in Judah. Bethlehem, Atam, Tekoa, Bethzur, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Merishah, Ziph, Adarim, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Aijalon, and Hebron. These were fortified cities in Judah and Benjamin. He strengthened their defenses and put commanders in them with supplies of food, olive oil, and wine. He put shields and spears in all the cities and made them very strong. So Judah and Benjamin were his. The Levites and priests from all their districts throughout Israel sided with him. The Levites even abandoned their pasture lands and property and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them as priests of the Lord when he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat and calf idols he had made. Those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon, three years, following the ways of David and Solomon during this time. This is a passage in Chronicles and not in Kings. Why? What's that? It is history. history. Kings is history too. Yeah, because this is about people who stuck to the identity of who they were. He's saying that people from all over the nation came to Jerusalem, even though they weren't supposed to because they remembered who they were. The Levites came because they remembered who they were. Now Nehemiah or Ezra, whoever it is, is like, hey, we've only got 2% of the people who came from Babylon, but the ones who did, they're like these people. You're the good ones. Right? Right? I mean, it's, it's very relevant to what they're undergoing at the time of Nehemiah. That's why this passage is here. It's not that it's not true, but the other of Kings doesn't, isn't, isn't emphasizing the few people that came and were faithful to, to God and to Jerusalem. That's not his point. Jeremiah's not talking about that. He's talking about all the people who weren't. But the author of Chronicles wants to emphasize the few people who were. 1 Kings 13. This is going to go all the way through chapter 14. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel. This is that point where I was telling you that we have someone going from Judah into Israel. Does that mean there isn't a man of God in Israel for God to use? <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't say that. It's a possible implication here. The other thing that's interesting about this whole story is the man of God has no name in this entire story. And I love the way that occasionally God honors people while keeping them anonymous. And you can make of that what you want, um, but here we go. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. Okay, so this is one of those moments in Bethel where he's making offerings. Jeroboam! Is he a priest? (laughs) No. Should he be making offerings? No. Should he be making them at this altar in Bethel? No. Should he be making them to the golden calf? No. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar. So this is interesting. Prophets are interesting. As we get into the prophets, you're going to find out they're all interesting. And, And I just think God... Sometimes the prophets are dramatic people, um, and they do, and he uses them all in different ways. They all speak differently. So I love the picture of this man of God coming up and not yelling at Jeroboam, but yelling at the altar. All right? This is what he says. It's almost like Jeroboam doesn't even matter. That's how unimportant he is. Right? Okay. Altar, altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who makes offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. This is a 340-year prophecy. That's pretty good. This happens 340 years later. <laughs> now, it's interesting, no one knows that. Jeroboam doesn't know that. For all he knows, it's gonna happen tomorrow. Right? Which I think is part of his important for his responses. He doesn't know when this is gonna happen, but does he have any reason to believe that God's prophecies come true? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, because he's here because of someone who came and prophesied to him. And now this guy comes and doesn't even prophesy to him but prophesies to the altar. <laughs> but he's overhearing it. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. So because this is a 340-year prophecy that isn't going to happen for a while, I think God wants to give a sign to say, hey, I mean it. So I'm going to show you an indication right now that what I'm talking about will happen even if you have to wait a while, okay? This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. Well, that's pretty good. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. All right, this is this is a dramatic moment. <laughs> this man of God yells at the altar, Jeroboam says, seize him, arrest him, and his hand just shrivels up. To such an extent, it says he couldn't even pull it back. It's like there was just nothing there. Right? It's just so small he can't even and and I think also it's the speed up. He can't like get his hand away. And so it shrivels up, and then the altar just splits open and the ashes pour out. I mean that's just this is weird. <laughs> No no. Okay. <laughs> Nor do ashes actually pour out from inside an altar, but I guess they're in the cup, probably. Then the king said to the man of God, "Intercede with the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored." This is a lot of chutzpah. Right? I mean, why does he think? Why does he have any reason to think God will do this? I don't know. But it is interesting to note that here he is surrounded by his golden calves and this altar, albeit split, and does he ask them for help? No. When push comes to shove, where does he look to for help? Ah, yeah. So the man of God interceded with the Lord. Crazy. And the king's hand was restored. It became as it was before. God's grace is even here, right? He doesn't have to give Jeroboam back his hand. He does. The king said to the man of God, come home with me for a meal, and I will give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here, for I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. Now, we're never told why God gives him this command, but I think there are ways to guess. Why would you be told not to return by the way you came? To eat for the so no one will catch you. Why would you be told not to go home with the king whom you just cursed? So the king won't kill you. I mean, I think I know what kind of gift he wants to give him. You know, I mean, I, I think there's there are practical reasons for this. But it goes beyond this. We don't actually know, and it is a command, and we're going to find out. This 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 is a this is a problematic passage. We're gonna we're going not understand everything that happens. What's that? Well, I know, but I'm not. What I'm saying is, I'm not sure he knows why he was told this. But the other thing is, it's not like he said, I was told to go this way. <laughs> he just said, I was told not to go the way I came. Well And I'm out of here. You know, I think that's part of it. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. All of this is great. Now the story gets complex. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel. Now wait a minute. Is this a man of God? Is this not a man of God? Why send a man of God from Judah to Bethel if you've got a prophet in Bethel? Maybe? Maybe? Yeah. Could be? Could be. But the other question is if he is a good prophet, why hasn't he said something about everything that's happening here in Bethel? Like the altars and the sacrifices, and why hasn't he spoken up about that? Well, we so, don't know that he didn't. We don't know that he didn't. That's true. Doesn't say he did. And by the time we're done with this passage, I have no idea if he's a good witch or a bad witch, to quote the Wizard of Oz. I have no idea if he's a good prophet or a bad prophet. I can't tell. So it's all a little confusing, but let's keep going. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Oh, I didn't notice that before. That's actually really relevant. Okay, hold on. Keep going. Their father asked them, which way did he go? Well, this is interesting because to your point, Lorian, he said, he told him what he said to the king, which among other things was, I'm supposed to go back away, I didn't come, but apparently they watched where he went. (laughs) So he's not being particularly sneaky, whatever that means. So which way did he go? And his son showed on the road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And this is where... I wish scripture would tell us the motivations because there's one way to read this is that the prophet is impressed and respects the man of God and actually just wants to bless him. Right. That is possible. So let's read in see. So he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. And he found him sitting under an oak tree. And he asked, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. Not a lot of those, apparently. So the prophet said to him, come home with me and eat. And the man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of God, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. And the old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. Why? I don't understand this story. I wish I thought and thought. I wanted to come with a really brilliant explanation. (laughs) I don't understand this story. If he's a good prophet, this is a bad moment. Right? If he's a bad prophet, I still don't understand his motivation.
1: If he's bad why he has to be a bad prophet, I don't know. If he's a machine prophet This
0: is what I wonder. Yes. That is the best explanation I can come up with, also. Here's the difficulty with that. If that's what happens, he is the most repentant man you've ever seen in a little bit. Which is possible. It's possible, right? Once he gets what he wants, then he can be like, oh man, that was bad. So, yes. So, the best answer is he's a conflicted prophet. <laughs> right? That he's been a little cowardly about Jeroboam. And then we have this man of God come who's strong. And he's a little jealous, and so he wants to make him fall, if nothing else than to make him feel better because, hey, he's not perfect either, right? And I, I feel more strongly about this when I notice that it says they told him what the king said. Because before that, I didn't think he had any reason to know that he wasn't supposed to eat or drink anything when he first invited him. But now I'm thinking, oh, maybe he actually did know that because it says his sons told him what he said to the king. So he went there specifically to ask him to do something he wasn't supposed to do, which then makes this lie not sound spontaneous, which it sort of felt like, but maybe planned. Maybe he's like, how can I get him to fall? I'll tell him that's what God told me. And now he's now made God, he's using God. And throughout the Old Testament, this is not something that is good. (laughs) Do you all agree with that? I mean, this was Saul's thing. Saul used God for his ends. Anytime that's the situation... It's, it's a bad, bad thing. And the circumstances, the consequences will be bad. What's interesting in the rest of the story is the consequences are not bad for the prophet. <laughs> Let's keep reading. But he's lying. So the man of God returned with him. Eh, he probably shouldn't have done that. I think we can acknowledge that this, there's no reason, right? He probably was just thirsty and hungry or wanted... I don't know why. You can ask, why did he go back? Because no matter what... He should at least say, would God have changed his mind? And would God not tell me? And I understand it puts him in a little bit of a situation, but he knows how things are in Bethel. I would think the most obvious conclusion at this point is, you're lying to me. (laughs) Because God was very clear about this. I'm going home, right? You know, give me a sign, like a a hand shriveling up or an altar breaking in two, and maybe I'll know it was from God. But otherwise, God was pretty clear. So I do think there's not really a way to justify It's not enough to say this guy confused him. I think he could have been clear on this. Nothing else he could have prayed, right? We just don't see any sort of pause. He's just like, okay, cool. So the man of God returned with them and ate and drank in his house. And while they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat and drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. This whole story is strange. Why is God using the bad old prophet to explain to the man of God what's happening when clearly God can speak to the man of God directly and has done so? He's mad at him. Jesus. I guess. <laughs> you think so? Right. I think, the old, I think the old prophet does feel guilt about this. So I think you're correct. Because when I said he gets repentant, I think it's pretty clear when this is all done, he feels very guilty. He feels like, oh my gosh. Well, the guy from
1: Judah, too, I mean, yeah, that makes sense to us, but I don't know, maybe he didn't quite understand that, or maybe he did believe, or maybe that God was speaking
0: through, you know, I don't know. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, again, I'm not sure what to make of that. Does that mean he kept eating and drinking? Or is this just chronology not quite there? I don't know. I don't want to make too much of it. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him as he went on his way a lion met him on the road and killed him and his body was left lying on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body and they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived when the prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it he said It is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him, as the word of the Lord had warned him. And the prophet said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And they did so. This is very reminiscent of what he said before. I think it's intentionally kind of echoing that. Then he went out and found the body lying on the road, with the donkey and the lion standing beside it. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. What's the point of that? To tell us this this is a lion from God. Right? And that this lion, ironically, is the only obedient creature in this whole story. Because the lion did not eat or drink. <laughs> What's that? The yeah, the donkey too. <laughs> You're right. The donkey didn't run. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. So the prophet picked up the body of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. This is why I think he feels guilty. He's like, ah. Then he laid the body in his own tomb. And they mourned over him and said, alas, my brother. And after burying him, he said to his sons, when I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places in the town of Samaria will certainly come true. Now, the end result of all this is that it makes it that much more convincing to this prophet that everything the man said would happen would happen. Because now the prophet also prophesied about what was going to happen, and it happened. So the end result of all this is that there there should be even more clarity among all of Bethel and all of Israel that what God prophesied about Josiah is going to come to pass. Because we now not only have the sign of the altar, but we have the sign of the man of God being killed by a lion that didn't then go ahead and eat him or maul the donkey. And we have the sign of the old prophet who himself experienced this prophecy which came true. I mean, we have all these things which are layered there, which I think have the end result of convincing, of of attempting to convince Jeroboam to pay attention. And that's why the very next sentence is that important. Even after this, it says, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. It is willy-nilly. I mean, he's like, you want to be a priest? He's like Oprah. You're a priest, and you're a priest, and you're a priest, and you're a priest. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. You would think at
1: least that people would have a little bit of fear of God after hearing
0: this, like become a priest. You would think, and this is just the beginning, I will just say this, the phrase, this phrase, you'll see this a lot, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made Israel, uh, and in his sin. So this phrase, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin is used at least a dozen times and I'm not just pulling a dozen out of a hat, at least 12 times of other wicked kings of Israel. Jeroboam has become the standard of wickedness. The only person, there's, there's one king that is not said walked in the way of Jeroboam and it says he was even more wicked than Jeroboam and that's Ahab and we'll get to him later. <laughs> But, but it's interesting that here's this Jeroboam who was fulfilling, you know, he was prophesied to do this, but that doesn't mean he's a good guy. And he doesn't respond to God, and he doesn't listen to God, except when it benefits him. <laughs> and he becomes the standard because, not because he turned them towards Asheroth or Baal, although you can argue ultimately that's the end result of what he did, but not because of that but because he just disregarded the niceties, the the, the specifics, the the clarities of who God was and how God wanted to be worshipped. He said, we'll worship God as we want to worship God. God said, I want you to make the trek to Jerusalem. And the irony is, we can actually see the wisdom in God's command that they make the trek to Jerusalem in exactly the reason that Jeroboam didn't want them to make the trek to Jerusalem. Because it is supposed to unite them. It is supposed to keep them a people. It is supposed to help them not lose their identity. It is supposed to help them remember every time they come together. Because what were all the festivals they were supposed to celebrate? They were all remembrances of who they were. They were supposed to celebrate Passover together, right? The day they left Egypt. They were supposed to celebrate the festival of booths together. They're wandering in Israel. They were supposed to celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement together. They were supposed to celebrate the day that they entered Canaan together. All these festivals are points of history that they are supposed to celebrate together in order to say, this is who we are. And Jeroboam doesn't want them to do that. And so he says, we'll worship God our own way. And God says, then you're not really worshiping me.
1: So it's interesting that God was mad at Solomon restrained from his commandments and him, and yet he uses somebody even more evil. And he could have, he could have put a good guy in there and said, <laughs> yeah, for sure. is, I, I want to reemphasize this is what I want done. But he doesn't. He goes, God goes the opposite way. You, he puts a really bad dude in there. You are not wrong. But the people didn't have to family. follow
0: him. No, but I'm why stuck did stuck God, with God with do that? Really to... um, you will love the prophet Habakkuk. Because the prophet Habakkuk Unlike the other prophets, he has n- almost no declarative statement. He has one at the very end of the book. His declarative statement at the end is, yet I will rejoice. <laughs> but the yet yeah should tell you something. <laughs> I will exalt in the Lord my God is at the very end. All the way up through his entire ministry as a prophet is simply to ask God questions that God never satisfactorily answers. And one of the questions, one of the main questions he asks is not about Jeroboam, but it's about Babylon. He says, I understand you need to punish Israel. Why would you use Babylon, who is ten times more wicked than we are, to punish Israel? And God's answer to him is, because I did. Which, as every child knows, is a very frustrating answer. Uh, but, it's something that <laughs> but, but, but it's not the first time or last time God's done that. Right. You're and correct. Now, you can argue... That with both Babylon and Jeroboam, I think you can argue successfully, because I think scripture tells us this, you can argue that with both Babylon and Jeroboam, God gives them a chance to repent and be willing instruments of his rather than wicked instruments of his. They both refuse. But it doesn't prevent God from doing what God does. I think the point that that the author of Kings and Chronicles both want us to see this far is that the decline of Israel was not a sign that God lost control. You see that? It was not a sign that God ran out of options. It was not a sign that God didn't know what he was doing. In fact, I want to I go back and just tie up some of the We have some more passages here we didn't get to that we'll get to next week. But, but I did have some, just some thoughts that we can draw from all this really quickly. Um, one, I think they want us to know that God is in control. Even when things feel chaotic or other people seem in control, God is still in control. And it would be very easy without the references from the author of Chronicles and Kings who keep saying this happened because God said it would happen. If you don't have those passages it would be easy if you're living in the midst of it to think where is God? This is all running out of, this is chaotic. Right. You know? We've got a man of God who's now dead in the road. I mean what, what is happening here? You know, this is chaotic. The altar's splitting in half but Jeroboam's still ruling. You know, it could feel very chaotic. Israel was at the top and now we're messed up and where's God? And isn't that true in our lives? That things feel chaotic and we need, we we want a chronicler to walk behind us and say and this is because God had decreed it. Then we'd feel better. (laughs) We'd be like, oh okay. And I think the author of Chronicles of Kings wants us to know you can assume that chronicler. (laughs) You know, you can assume that. It's true. You may not get it. You may not understand why he'd use someone like Jeroboam. You may not understand why he used the old prophet who lured this poor guy into nothing. You may not understand why the man of God wasn't supposed to eat and drink anything and why that was such a big deal. You may not understand all that, but what you should understand is that God is not out of control. It's not chaos. He's got a plan. And if you don't know that he has a plan and you don't think his plan is really solid, how about remembering that the man of God prophesied what was going to happen 340 years from today? Does that tell you how thorough God's plan might be? (laughs) <laughs> that he knows the name of the king and what that king is going to do? I mean, it's really astounding if you think about that. This is not a Nostradamus obscure prophecy. This is a name and an act. And it's going to happen just that way. And a place. Centuries later. <laughs> God's in control. I think the second thing we see is that when true power is needed, everybody turns to the true God. Even Jeroboam. In this story, I'm not making a general statement about it. Beyond that, I'm just saying in this story, when true power is needed, everybody turns to the real God. What story of the uh, the prophecy of the altar? Or what? Oh, Joel, uh, the Josiah. Josiah is a king who's going to sacrifice the priests who are sacrificing on the high altars who aren't really priests. He's going to sacrifice them on the altars. So we'll come. It's to a that. pretty gruesome story, but okay. yes, we will come. Josiah is also about 11 when he does this. Is he 8 when he... Yeah, he becomes king at 8. I think he's like 11 when he actually does this amazing thing. I think you have to be 11 to do something like that, right? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good idea when you're 11. God continues to show his graciousness to anyone who looks for it, even Jeroboam. Intercede on my behalf. Give me back my hand. I mean, there really is zero reason for God to give him back his hand except to demonstrate his own control of power, perhaps. But he, he could have done that in any number of other ways. He could have taken away his other hand. I mean, there's, there's nothing that necessitates. Jeroboam can still rule and do what God needs him to do without his hand. It really is just an act of graciousness on God's part. That in the midst of everything that's happening, he wants Jeroboam to know, hey, I, I'm a God of grace too. Stop running from me. Stop fighting against me. You know, it might work out better for you. I'm the one who gave you this kingship, and I gave you your hand. Stop treating me like you're treating me. And Jeroboam. Psh,
1: so and that's Jeroboam almost like the standard. We, our own revelation in modern day about, I don't like that guy, he's evil, and God let him have this. Why? You well, know, this guy was an evil dude. Yeah. God gave, not only did he not do something bad to him, he gave, he gave him back his hands. Like, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's that's just
0: not fair, God. Well, and we just saw Solomon and David both wrestle with that in their time as kings too. You know, why does God do that? And it's not answered here except to remind us He's in control. Yeah, I find Intercede that interesting the too. My God, yep. God. Yep. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, and restrained. yeah. Well, and He knows. I mean, in His in His mind, the man of God is a man of God. He's got the inroad. It's His God more than He's you know. I don't know if He's my God at this God. point. he's His God. It's true. it's true. It's true. It's true. No, it's true. There is a, there's, yes, and uh, to step back is just because you reminded me of it, there's an interesting moment. There's something that happens, it's very subtle in the scripture, for Jacob. So there's Jacob before he wrestles with God. You may remember that story where he, God allows him to physically wrestle with him. It's an interesting thing. He physically wrestles with God, and then God... Won't get into details, but God essentially grants him the opportunity to win. Because <laughs> I think he wants to teach him something. You can go back and listen to the podcast if so you can find it. But I think the point, what's interesting though is after that, after, after Jacob physically wrestles with God, you realize something. All his life he's been wrestling with God. That's what we see. That he's wrestled with God forever. But now there's this physical wrestling with God and there's this subtle thing that happens prior to wrestling with God Whenever, God talks about, whenever Jacob talks about God, he says, the God of my father is Abraham and Isaac. After wrestling with God, he says, the God of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and my God. It's really fascinating. You see this transition of someone who accepted the faith as his own, who believed in God before, but now he's wrestled with God. Now he knows God. Now it's, it's, it's his faith, too. And I think that's part of what you're saying is there's this, this Solomon has his faith he inherits from David, but maybe it's not until the end of Ecclesiastes that he's his God. And that's part of God's, since this is your attitude, because I think God's like, I've appeared to you twice and you still treat me like I'm not your God. <laughs> I think that's part of that whole attitude point. And that's what Solomon had to learn. And then the final thing we see in this story is just, again, the rapid decline of Israel. Look where we are. It took no time at all. Solomon died, and now 10 of the nations of Israel are, are doing it all wrong. They're just completely astray. And Jeroboam has now earned his place in history as the standard of wicked kings. It took a month. What's that? It took a month. It took a month. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly how long, but it feels like it's, it's not much more than that, really. It's, it's so fast. It's so fast. yeah but they were still together and they were still coming to Jerusalem and they were still united and there was still a sense of who they were and now it's just gone and it never, it, it never comes back to this side of the exile it never comes back to this side of the exile you can argue it comes back thanks to Nehemiah and Ezra's work and God's work after that but it never comes back to this side and it's just, it's just crazy how fast it happened so fast you know I, there's, I, don't, I don't think I need to draw the lines. There's, there's a lesson there somewhere. <laughs> so, go with God. We'll pick it up again next week. Thanks for joining us on the journey. Discipleship Matters is a ministry created by David McGill specifically to help pastors of small churches. If you'd like more information, visit David M-E-G-I-L-L dot And we'll see you next week.